Philippians chapter 1 verse 18. We're still working through our series, uh, Joy Living Without Flip-Flops, um, which is, and our, our, our sentence, I guess, is um, quit your flip-flopping, get joy in Jesus. And that's uh, what I see the book of Philippians as being all about. Quit your flip-flopping, but get your joy, or by getting your joy in Jesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, which says this, and it's the last part of 18 that we're starting on. Uh, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is, 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 is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you Again, amen. If Paul was uh, a TV evangelist, he might say something like this. Um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And from my experience, that might mean beating, homelessness, shipwreck, persecution, and imprisonment. So if you were to create an advert for the gospel, I wonder if you would include things like this in the promotional material. Up until now, Paul has been looking backwards at how the Philippian church has caused him to rejoice and how his imprisonment has been part of God's plan for the advancement of the gospel. So far in this letter, as I said, Paul has been looking back, but now he starts to look forward. And he starts off by saying, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul clearly has one thing in his sights at this moment, is deliverance. One day these doors are going to be unlocked. One day the manacles around his wrists are going to be loosed. And Paul is going to be delivered. He's going to be released. He's going to be set free. And the way that he's writing makes it sound like it's already a done deal for Paul. As if he can already feel the breeze of freedom on his face. And when I read this, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I want to say to Paul... Paul, have a look around you, look at your reality, look at your physical um, reality. How can you say that you know you're going to be delivered? How can you be so confident? Because it's, it's like Paul sounds a little bit unhinged to me, rather desperate. I can almost see the, the delusional gleam in his eye and the little bit of uh, foamy spit on the corner of his mouth as he starts jabbering about his freedom while he's in the middle of a jail. 
Paul starts to sound like one of those people who believes that if they believe enough, then God is kind of compelled to do what they ask. It's like he's trying to back God into a corner with his fervor and with, with his, his belief. And Paul, as I first read it, 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 he's starting to make me a little bit nervous. And have you ever done this, I wonder? Have you ever, have you tried to believe so much that failure is simply not an option? That God has to come through? That God has to deliver? That God must heal? That God must restore? That God must save? And you nearly bust a gut in your prayer life. And this is a dangerous place for us to be because we run the risk of starting to dictate to God what he must do. From our limited perspective on earth, we're attempting to order around the creator of the universe as to how he should run things. And of course, this is not what's happening with Paul. Paul is not talking about his physical deliverance. He's not talking about physical rescue. He's talking about something else. How do we know this? Well, if we skim down to verse 21, what do we read? We read this, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two, living or dying. My desire is, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul here is talking about two possible outcomes. The first one is that he lives, and the second one is that he dies. So Paul, when Paul talks about his deliverance, it cannot mean deliverance from his immediate circumstances. He's talking about an ultimate kind of deliverance. It's the kind of deliverance that he writes about in 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, where he says this, But the Lord stood by me, this is him writing, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then this is the key verse. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. So, What this is saying is that the Lord stood by Paul and strengthened him so that the message might be proclaimed, so that the gospel might be advanced, like we heard about last week. Paul had a job to do, and until that job was done, Paul knew that he would be rescued from every evil deed. Okay, that doesn't mean he didn't suffer. He suffered incredibly, as we heard about last week. But ultimately, after the job that God had for him to do was completed, he would then be brought safely into God's heavenly kingdom. In short, Paul was invincible as long as God had work for him to do, and then he would be delivered home. This is the deliverance that Paul is talking about, an ultimate deliverance that would take place at the end of his life. So, What does this mean for you if you are a Christian? What are the implications for your life? Might it be that as long as you have breath in your body, 
God has a calling on your life? Might it be that as long as there is a beat left in your heart and a thought left in your brain, that God has useful work for you to be doing here on earth? Because it was the confidence that Paul had that God would ultimately uh, deliver him that spurred him on. It was this ultimate confidence that God would rescue him from decay and disease and death that spurred him on to keep on going. Why is this? Well, the reason is simple, because the gospel that he's proclaiming is the only thing that will outlive decay, death, disease, and sin. After this world has ended, what will remain will be God and those who have bowed the knee before him as Savior, King, and Lord. These are the people who will be delivered. And what is the basis of Paul's confidence that he he will be delivered into God's presence at the end of his life. Because that's one of the accusations leveled against against Christians, is how can you be so cocksure, how can you be so proud that you would assume that that God's going to rescue you? How can you be sure that you're going to go to heaven and that other people are going to go to hell? How can you be sure that sounds so proud? So what is the basis of Paul's confidence that this ultimate deliverance will happen? What empowers him to say in in verse uh, 18, yes, and I will rejoice? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer. It says, for I know that through your prayers and and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So there are two things that's giving him confidence. One are the prayers of the Christians. Number two is the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So these two things, the prayers of Christians and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, are going to enable him to keep on going until his race is finished. Now, take a moment to consider this. Paul does not just say that the Spirit of Jesus Christ will enable him to keep on going. He says that the prayers of the Christians and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will enable him to reach the end of his race, the moment of his ultimate deliverance when he's delivered into the presence of God. So, how important do you think your prayers are? What value or price tag do you put on, your, on those moments when you commune with God and you intercede on behalf of others? Do you realize that in Paul's estimation here in Philippians chapter 1, the prayers of the saints are as essential to his persevering as the presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit? Think about this. Really allow this to sink into your understanding. Along with Jesus' direct help, the only thing that's credited with the Christian making it through to the end and victoriously are the prayers of other Christians. The only thing except for Jesus that, that, can, that can bolster believers through the toughest of times and enable them to look ahead, as we read with, in verse 20, with eager expectation and hope are the prayers of other believers. This is incredible. And the reason is this, because it's through the prayers of other Christians that God's empowering presence is communicated to other Christians who might be suffering. It's the presence of Christ and the prayers of Christians that enable suffering Christians to say, as we see in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. 
and to die is gain. That's the only way that Paul was able to say that, because Christ was with him and because Christians were praying for him. Therefore, prayer can no longer be thought of as something we unthinkingly post on Facebook when our friend is going through a tough time praying for you. Prayer is not good wishes or positive energy being sent someone's way. Prayer is more. Prayer is something that God has elevated to the same level of importance as the presence of his own son in determining whether we carry on or quit. And I struggle when I say that because I realize the weight of what I'm saying because I feel like I'm treading very close to heresy or to blasphemy because it feels like I'm saying that God isn't enough. He needs our prayers as well like he's unable to supernaturally intervene unless we're on our knees praying. But of course that's not the truth. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything that's within his character and nature. And yet, he has created this universe such that faith and prayer are a determining factor whether he works miraculously or not. Let me say that again. God has created this universe in such a way that faith and prayer are a determining factor whether God works miraculously or not. And we just have to read Matthew, 50, Matthew 13, verse 58, to realize this. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What about Matthew chapter 9, verse 2? And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees the faith of the friends, and as a result, he forgives the sins of the, par- of the paralytic. Their faith moves his hand. Or what about the blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verse 28, where, it, where Jesus says, Do you believe that I'm able to do this, to heal you? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. So scripture shows us time and time again, as in these passages, that things happen because God's people pray. And things don't happen because God's people don't pray. And Paul shows us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, that his ability to carry on in the darkest of times and to stay on mission is directly connected to the prayers of Christians. So, who are you not praying for that you need to start praying for? What is God not doing because you're not praying? Maybe you view prayer as an optional extra. This is how I view it many times. It's nice to do, but if I don't pray, well, God's going to do it anyways. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's a false God that we've created that lets us off the hook. That's a fatalistic worldview that has nothing to do with the God of the Bible who responds to the prayers of his people with acts of power and miracles. The God of the Bible enables his servant to face two doors, one called life and one called death. 
And, this, and it's the prayers of, the, of, of Christians and the presence of Christ that enables him to say, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Life or death, I can't decide. Can you believe what you're hearing? Do you know anyone who says that? Life or death, I don't know. But let's continue because it gets even crazier. Verse 21 to 24. For, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So do you see what this means? Death is no longer the enemy. Death is the friend that leads you into the arms of Jesus. Death is the, is the elevator that, tran- tr- that transports you from the basement up to the penthouse suite. Death is not the gateway that removes us from life. Death is the gateway that leads us to life. In verse 22, we see that Paul cannot choose between the two. It's like a race with a photo finish. Who wins? You know, we're not sure. We have to look back and see. Because it's like Paul wants them both. And the world today views the choice between life and death like the choice between a bowl of ice cream and a bowl of poo. Why would you choose a bowl of poo over a bowl of ice cream? Only an insane person would. But the Christian who has the support of Jesus Christ and the prayers of other Christians suddenly sees the choice of death and life not as the choice between ice cream and poo, but as the choice between one type of ice cream and another type of ice cream. They are both good. And in fact, if Paul was pressed, he'd probably view death as the better option. For Paul, life is ice cream, but death is ice cream with sprinkles and caramel on it with a little umbrella sticking out the top. He seems to view death as the better option because death means gain. Paul says that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's this show on Netflix at the moment called 13 Reasons Why about the factors that led to a teen's suicide. But Paul does not seem suicidal here. He does not seem depressed. He does not seem unhinged or manic. He seems very matter-of-fact. Paul is saying, to live is to know that I have the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. But to die means I'll see Jesus face to face. Right now, Jesus' presence is mediated through the Holy Spirit. But when we die, we will be eyeball to eyeball, shoulder to shoulder with Jesus in his unmediated presence and glory. And Paul describes this hope beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, where he says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And the dirty mirror is good. You can make out some features, but face-to-face is even, even better. Ice cream is tasty, but an ice cream sundae, a banana split, a knickerbocker glory with all the trimmings, that's even better. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And here Paul is saying that if he stays alive, which as we, we've already found out is the lesser of two amazing choices before him, but if he stays alive, maybe he'll get to visit the Philippians again and so he can encourage them. He wants to remain on earth not to avoid death, but to encourage others. And so for people who view death as something to be feared, life becomes an exercise in avoiding death for as long as possible. It's like my daughter Maya, who for the longest time merely viewed water as something to be rescued from. We would go into the water with her and she'd clutch onto us and she'd grab onto us and she wouldn't let go no matter how much we assured her that she wouldn't drown. However, just a few weeks ago, we spent some time by a lake in New Hampshire with my parents and now Maya enjoys the water. At the start of the week, Wendy had to physically help her off the dock into the water even though the water only went up to Maya's chest. There was a primal fear there. However, by the end of the week, Maya was jumping into the water, was chasing her sisters and splashing around. That water had lost its fear because it had lost the unknown factor. And it's the same with death. As long as we define our lives by avoiding death, we're not living. We're merely avoiding death. We, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't bring it up in polite conversation. I've read that in in Victorian society, you would not discuss sex. Well, or not if you had any refinement. And today, we don't discuss death. We use euphemisms, passing on, going to a better place, promoted to glory. We're afraid to say the word death, just like the wizards in Harry Potter wouldn't say Voldemort. Instead, they would say, he who must not be named. And death is he, that which must not be named. But the good news is that as Christians, we can talk about death. I can say that one day I will die. I can say that one day I will be worm food. Paul could say, could say that he was looking forward to the prospect, not in a gothic or a morbid way, but in a cheerful, almost lighthearted way. And here's why this is so important, and I've already alluded to it. As long as we fear death, we live our lives trying to, trying to avoid it, and therefore our lives become defined by it. Just as if I know that someone has taken out a contract on my life, even if I never encounter the assassin, I imagine that he's in every corner, in every shadow. Life becomes about avoiding the assassin, about getting ahead of the hitman. But what Paul shows us is that it's only as we stop fearing death 
that we're freed to truly live. Up until a few weeks ago, Maya's life was overshadowed by this fear of water. It had way too much authority over her. It had way too much power in her life. And death is the same for us. We waste our lives trying to avoid it. But look at Paul. He could look death in the eye and identify it as an ally, as a friend. In a sense, he could say to death, one day, my friend, you will take me by the hand and you will lead me to my precious Savior. But patience, that day has not yet come because I still have work to do. It was the embracing of death that truly enabled Paul to live. Please hear this. Those who fear death never truly live, whereas those who view death as an ally know the secret of truly living. They, they, they know that life isn't just the absence of death. Life is, is a short time in which we have to do as much good as we possibly can for the sake of Christ and the gospel. That's what life is. It's not the absence of death. It's doing as much good as we possibly can. Paul words it like this. I will remain. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul knew why he was staying. For their progress and joy in the faith. What a motivation to live. Can you imagine asking someone what they feel their purpose on earth is and they respond with, I'm here for your progress and I'm here for your joy in the faith. And so Paul's life was one of purpose as he awaited that time when he would die and be called home. And this is why he could say in one of my favorite verses, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, this is why Paul could say, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This is the joy that encourages. Paul could look back on his life and say, it's all been worth it. He could look back and say that the suffering and the jealousy of other preachers and the prison time, it's all been about Jesus. And as we've seen today, he could also look ahead and say, whether I live or whether I die, may it all be about Jesus. But why could he say this? Why did death no longer hold any fear for him? Why was he not trembling in his boots, considering that moment when his heart would stop, when his brain would stop functioning, and when his lungs would no longer inflate? Romans 6 verse 9 explains in detail, and I'd like us to leave us with this point, because what Romans 6 verse 9 demonstrates is that Christian hope is not a delusion. It's not just bravado. It's not putting a brave face on things. It's not ignoring the facts. Faith in Jesus is not about avoiding life's realities. Instead, it's about squaring off against them, looking them face to face. Secular humanism, which is this world in which we live, secular humanism tries to avoid the reality of death. Because it's the big unknown. But Christian faith can look death in the eye and say, you don't scare me. Christian faith is like a kid saying to a bully in the schoolyard, my dad is bigger than your dad. I know that your dad exists. 
And without my dad, I would be scared of your dad. But I'm not scared of your dad because my dad exists and he could beat your dad up. And so we can say, my Jesus is bigger than death. I know that death exists. And without Jesus, I would be scared of death. But I'm not scared of death because Jesus exists and and he could beat death up. In fact, he already has. And this is the joy that encourages. This is the joy that can look death in the face and say, take me home, but only after I've completed what Jesus has for me here on earth to do. This is the joy that encourages, that keeps us steady, that keeps us from flip-flopping. So let's read Romans 6 verse 9. It says this, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, thinking about that, with knowing that, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what this means is that Jesus who died once will never die again. As Stephen Matthewson puts it, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. But what difference does this make for us, Jesus' followers? Matthewson continues, when you follow the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans 6, you find that our union with Christ, that is our connection to him, makes this true for us as well. In fact, verse 9 is connected to verse 8, which says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So what's Matthewson saying here? Simply this, that those of us who have pledged our allegiance to King Jesus will live because his life is credited to us. We share a joint checking account with Jesus. What he has has deposited, we can access and we can draw on. He's the primary account holder. It's in his name, but we have full and complete access to it as co-account holders. Just as Jesus died, so we die. Just as Jesus lives, so we live in him. This is why death has no fear for the Christian. Because death has lost its bite, its power to intimidate. As I said, now it becomes the means by which we're brought into the presence of God himself. It's the means of our ultimate deliverance. As Paul said in verse 19, Death is now our ally. Listen to what John says in John 3.36 as he contrasts those who should fear death with those who have no reason to. He says this, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's a present reality, not just a future hope. So as we trust in King Jesus, we take his righteousness on ourselves through faith. But we also take on his resurrection life. Our death has already occurred when we died to ourselves, our sin and our autonomy. So what remains? If death has already happened, what's left? Only this. A productive life here on earth, ice cream, 
followed by an eternal life with Jesus in heaven. An ice cream sundae. Life followed by life. And what's in between those two lives? The ice cream and the ice cream sundae. Death. An instant. A moment. Something that does not have to be feared. Because it is, it is death that takes us from life here on earth to life face to face with Jesus. Which, as Paul said in, in Philippians chapter 1, is far better. It's not just better. It's far better. The, the only problem is that we don't have any idea how much far better heaven is than what we're experiencing here on earth. But one day, if you are in Jesus, you will know how far better life eternal is than life here on earth. Let me close with these words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. When when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth we count on, and this is how it changes our lives. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Don't flip-flop. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Exalted and resurrected Jesus, you have been raised from the dead, and so I say, hallelujah. Preaching the gospel is not useless, it's essential. Faith in you is not futile, but it's fertile. We're no longer encased in our sins, we're fully wrapped in your righteousness. Those who have gone to sleep in you are not slumbering in the void, they are savoring your resurrection glory. We are less We are less to be pitied than anyone and more to be grateful than everybody because you have been raised from the dead. Everything changes. You are the first fruits and the guarantee of a whole new order, the the new creation kingdom of redemption and restoration. And the rotting and the decay in our earthly bodies will give way to the joy and the delight of our resurrection bodies. The the kingdom of this world has, has already become and will be fully manifest as the kingdom of our God and of you, his Christ. You are already reigning, and you will reign forever and ever. All evil kingdoms, wicked authorities, and malevolent powers have already been defeated by you, and one day will be completely eradicated by you. Jesus, your death is the death of death, and your resurrection is the resurrection of all things. Oh, the wonder and the glory and grace In light of this great hope, because this gospel is true, free me and my friends here at Cornerstone from the pettiness and emptiness of living for ourselves. Because of your compelling love, show us how to live for you, for you died for us and have been raised again. Hallelujah. Amen.